Welcome everyone. So just a brief introduction. This is our first video. Um, so first off, my name is Mark, um, first year medical student at SUNY Downstate. And today I'm joined by Menachem, also a first year medical student at Downstate. You can say hi. Hi, I think actually <laughs> we call ourselves second year. Uh, oh, that's true. We may be officially second years at this point. Maybe if we um, pass our exams, I think. Right. Uh, Menachem's a second year. I'll say I'm quasi first year at this point. Um, and this is really our first introduction to our Shabbos initiative. Um, so just a few words on that. Um, it's a very complex topic. It's something that is really on the minds of all from medical students coming into medical school. Uh, like eventually down the line, we know we want to do residency, but we know we want to do it in the correct um, and halachic proper way. And so we are developing this series based on a number of sources, primarily right now it's going to be SACA training. And the reason for it is so you can better understand not exactly how to go through it, but how to approach it. So this is not going to be the end all. This is not, you walk away from this and you immediately know everything about Shabbos and halacha and what to do in residency. This is to provide the background with which to do further uh, research or just how to approach a rabbi, how to, what questions are appropriate questions, what to ask. Um, you know, before we started this project and I spoke with a lot of students, a lot of them had told me that they spoke to a rabbi who cleared it. And it's, it's great. Like I'm good because the rabbi told me I can do residency on Shabbos. And to me, the question really is now, what were, what was the rabbi saying? You know, where are you coming from? As someone asking the question, um, is the rabbi saying it because they have some secret head there? Generally not. We're going to see through our slides and through our research that there really is no blatant head there. And so are they, what is the basis for what they're saying? What was the context with which you asked the question? And so with this, we're, we're looking out to give you the background to ask the right questions and to approach problems individually. So when you ask a rabbi, you know what to ask and you understand where they're coming from with their answer. There really is no blatant heter. Yes, you can just do residency on Shabbos. And so we're looking to give you that background. Um, I think it's also important to acknowledge that with this introduction that everyone's going to be on a different level. And so, you know, ideally there will be things we say that may be controversial. Not everyone's going to agree to everything. Um, we just want everyone to keep an open mind. And again, this is meant to give you the background. So that way you can go ahead and find your own path and find your own rabbi and um, do things how you see appropriate. Yeah, um, I think the goal really is to be the most informed consumer, so to speak, of rabbinic guidance. Um, and being an informed a religious person, just like being an informed doctor, um, makes that whole process a lot easier. Uh, so the question that we're going to address here, uh, Shemr Shabbos residency, uh, is it imperative? Or is it a preference? Um, important proviso, uh, like Mark said, this is not meant to be in place of proper rabbinic advice. Um, nothing that we say would ever uh, replace that for anyone here. Um, I, I guess the closest thing that this would be is edutainment. Uh, we hope that this makes approaching some of these topics easier um, and hopefully someone enjoys it. <laughs> Um, before we continue, there's one thing I want to say, just to, uh, in terms of our setup. Um, Menachem has done a ton of research, really well educated in general in medical halacha, and so a lot of this will be him sharing his resources and what he came along, 
and my role is sort of be to be like the layman's person um, to ask the questions that you will be watching that you may have. And so that way we can come out with a really clear and concise understanding and we're all on the same page. Additionally, I do want to frame the conversation. I think there's two ways to look at it. I think from a medical student's perspective, um, we know like coming in, at least this was always my thoughts in undergrad, was that of course, like I see doctors working on Shabbos all the time, of course there's a hetter. So that I think that that's one end of the spectrum. And I think from a halachic end of the spectrum, a lot of times when you read things about Shabbos and residency, you really hear the other end, which is what do you mean? There, there obviously is no blatant hetter. And so I think the, the, what, just to frame our conversation, what we're trying to do is really merge where the reality is. Um, understand what, what is meant when there's no hetter and understand what is meant that we see doctors who are working in the hospital on Shabbos and where did, where did that, where did the two lines merge? And so I think it's important to keep in mind that there really is no Dr. Hetter, but at the same time, we do know doctors who work uh, residency on Shabbos and just try to come to that consensus of where those two framed references join. All right. um, so like, like Mark said, most of this stuff comes from uh, sacred training. Um, there's also a great lecture series by Dr. Uh, Dr. Apple. Um, he's a Columbia trained cardiologist, pediatric cardiologist. Uh, he does a lot of stuff at, at Einstein, which is his alma mater. Um, big thank you to kind of the people that came before us. Uh, as we'll see, there's a lot of great sources that were called for us already. Um, and while the research was a lot of fun to do and the reading was a lot of fun to do, um, it wouldn't have been possible during first year medical school without uh, some, of these, some of these greats that preceded us. Um, all right. Uh, okay, so we wanted to also start off with like, what is the match before getting into like the complexities of like, how Shemr Shabbos ties into everything. Um, just a basic idea of the match. I think, um, you know, like myself before coming into medical school, it, it kind of almost sounded like it was blinded. Like you would just list <laughs> a number of hospitals and, and, and um, programs you were interested in and then magically like hospitals and programs would list you. But the reality is that it's matched because you go ahead, you go around the country if you're and, and apply to where you're interested in and you start to take interviews. Um, and it's important to realize that unlike a normal job interview where, you know, the employer may outright tell you, yeah, we're interested. We want to hire you. Or you can tell the employer um, that this is my number one spot. It's actually illegal for a hospital to tell you to preferentially like put them high on your list. So that way you match um, the way the system works is that you're going to list your hospitals and programs in the order which you like them and hospitals will rank their um, applicants in the order which they like them and then the, the algorithm will match the students based on like what's preferential to them and the hospitals and what's preferential and the hospital actually cannot tell you to rank them really high and, the, and, and therefore they'll rank you high and that it'll be a great match. Um, however, there are ways around it so they can like sort of hint to it. They can tell you like we're really excited, but they can't outright ask you to rank them preferentially. Um, and this is going to be really important when it comes to like Shabbos because hospitals have a very limited number of Shabbos spots and it really depends on who they rank because if they have two Shabbos spots and 10 residents, even if they want to give it to a firm person, they can't rank 10 from people and then, you know, 10 from people get matched and now they only have two Shabbos spots. So it's really important to get a feel for these things on the interviews. And it's important to understand how the match works and what role the hospital is allowed to um, play in terms of like telling you where they'll rank you because they can't ask you to rank them high, but they can 
um, hint to the fact that they have certain spots. And if you're a serious candidate and you're serious interested, um, then out of the 10 from people who came, they may, they'll rank you as part of the, their top 10, not all 10 from people because they can't really do that. Um, and so, yeah. And so when you're applying to a Shoma Shabbos residency, remember there's, I mean, there's two sides of every coin, right? So the reality is some hostels may be really interested in accommodating you for Shoma Shabbos. Um, it depends if they have a lot of residents um, to, to accommodate, you know, that they can move around their call schedule. Um, it also shows how progressive they are. They're willing to help out their residents. Some hostels are very into like, you know, they want their residents to have a good life. They want their residents to be happy. They may push things around. But at the same time, a lot of hostels really won't be able to accommodate. They may not be interested. The reality is that residency is extremely competitive. There's so many applicants. Why take an applicant that causes problems? Um, also, depending on the field, if it's a small field and there's not enough residents to cover call, then you being able to get off on a Friday and a Saturday is really difficult for them. Um, those may be prime days for call you may not be able to switch with other residents if they're not a lot of other residents. So it's important to realize that, yes, certain hostels may be very accommodating. Certain hostels um, really may say, we don't need you if you're going to cause these problems. Um, and so just, just keep that in mind. It's not, it's not a clear cut that if you're going to a hospital, they'll definitely be willing to accommodate you, especially because we know a lot of like Shomer Shabbos programs are not listed as Shomer Shabbos programs. They're Shabbos friendly. It's really up to the hospital if they're willing to accommodate you. And this is why it becomes such a sensitive topic. So here, there's one of many possible sources that we could have brought to describe the importance of Shabbos. Uh, but in this one, it says, uh, that Shabbos has such a prime uh, importance in Jewish life that even if you've lived a deeply imperfect life, like the people in the generation of Enish, if you keep Shabbos, Shabbos has such a transcendental property for the individual, but also for what the individual brings to society. Not only you're forgiven, but you're, it's assumed that your influence on society was better, and therefore it's totally forgiven to you. Um, and there are many other sources. Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch has a great uh, little introduction to Shabbos. Um, where Shabbos is not just another mitzvah, another one of the 613, uh, but it's, you know, it has, some, has a very special place in Jewish family life, uh, the personal life, and also communal life. Yeah. Um, and with this in mind, uh, we're going to see how much a person really needs to sacrifice within their life uh, to keep a mitzvah like Shabbos. Uh, this is not, this is a little piece of Shulchan Aruch where we're quoting specifically the Ramah, or Moshe Israelis, who is kind of a scion of uh, Ashkenazic tzach, at least. Um, in his notes, specifically on the Hilchah Sukkot, uh, where he's, he's trying to describe how much a person needs to spend on an asterisk. Remember, getting a citron was not easy uh, back in 15th century Europe. Uh, and you either had the choice to you know, do some mitzvahs and not others. Uh, and so in this, he says that you need to spend you know, up to a fifth of your wealth on uh, you know, doing a mitzvah, say, uh, a, positive, a positive mitzvah, like an asterisk, like buying an asterisk for the holiday of Sukkot. Um, now, right at the end of this paragraph, says this specifically applies to a positive mitzvah. However, regarding a negative mitzvah, one should spend all of their wealth rather than sin. So here we see an important principle in Allah that technically on a pure legalistic level, there's no upper li limit on a person's obligation to sacrifice financially, at least, for a negative prohibition. Um, with this in mind, we can start to understand, uh, you know, the scope of Shabbos. Now, Shabbos, on the other hand, a person might need to sacrifice financially, uh, but we do know um, that there is primacy given in terror to life. 
Um, and so one important caveat that is relevant to the medical field is that when there's a question of, uh, of, of saving life, uh, life is considered you know, an absolute value and Shabbos goes to the wayside. Uh, this is brought out from a Gemara in Yuma. Uh, the Gemara says, uh, What does the Torah mean when it says that, that B'nai Yisrael will keep the Shabbos? Torah says as follows. Keep Shabbos on a, on a greater level. A person should rather choose to disregard one Shabbos, break the laws of one Shabbos, so that you can keep many other Shabbos. Shmuel learns it kind of in a slightly different way. He says, If I was there, I would have said as follows, that my riot, my proof is better. Uh, and he brings another process, the person should live through the mitzvahs and shouldn't die through the mitzvahs, implying that a person should definitely uh, save life rather than, uh, rather than, rather than uh, let life go away and keep Shabbos. A person to truly keep Shabbos needs to save a life. Now, this second um, proof from Shmuel is actually brought down in all our makers. There's uh, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of nuance into which mucker we use, which source we use. But for now, all we really need to know is that life trumps uh, Shabbos on every level, even the suffolk of Gansapashas, even this, like a very, very low risk uh, Shabbos would go by the wayside. Just to like, you know, my little two cents. Um, I think these two slides are so perfect for what we were saying in terms of framing the conversation is that when you start with that Ramah, right, it's just like Shabbos is like, you have to spend all your wealth to keep Shabbos. And then on the other hand, a second later, we see like, oh, but Pekuach Nefesh will completely trump that, which, which is kind of um, not contradictory, but on the one hand, we see Shabbos as this like so important concept that you will literally have to lose all your wealth. And then a second later, we see how it's so easily trumped by Pekuach Nefesh. And so I think that's where like our conversation really comes into play is we're as residents, do you fit in the in-between? Um, and I would say that like, just from like a personal perspective, right before medical school, I took a job as a medical assistant in NYU and that was probably one of the first times where I had to very blatantly say, I cannot work Saturdays and, and Fridays are going to be questionable. I can't work the whole Friday um, because you know, it was winter time. Um, and this was the first time I was in an office where they weren't fully um, aware of what really Shabbos was. And so I had to explain it. And what's funny is that like when I was taking that job, it was so blatantly obvious I wasn't going to work on Shabbos. Right. It was, it was like, Obviously, I'm going to go in. I like prepared mentally. I'm going to go in and I'm going to explain it to them. And there's a good chance I may not get this job. And what's funny is that like, you know, within myself, like the contradiction of like being in medical school is like, oh, residency could be on Chavez. But, and, and when you think about it, there's really no reason, you know, it's funny how like that happens where you can work in a medical field and you know, obviously you can't work on Chavez. But then certain parts of the medical field where you kind of assume there's that heter, like, well, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to work on Chavez at one point. And so, you know, at least for me, that's sort of where I'm coming from. And, uh, and I think a lot of people are coming from where, where they have those thoughts, where they knew they weren't going to work on Shabbos and one thing, but residency sort of has this like cloud of like, there's some sort of pattern to do it. And the reality was like that cloud has to be clarified because that's not a simple thing. It's not simple, but we're, as we're going to see, you know, especially in the, towards the end of this, uh, at the more modern sources, there is a lot of nuance. And it really is based on these two sources. On the one hand, you do need to sacrifice financially for it. On the other hand, there is no reason to risk any amount of life. With that in mind, the question really isn't necessarily, uh, are you allowed to save life on Shabbos? No one would argue that you are allowed to. The question is, are you allowed to, you allowed to put yourself in a, in a state where uh, 
you're being trained on Shabbos to eventually save lives on Shabbos. So we're going to start with one statement from Dr. Daniel Eisenberg. He has a great website, JewishMedicalEthics.com, um, and he has a position piece on Shabbos, Shabbos residency. Uh, he is one of the harder liners. Um, he has great sourcing and definitely worth reading his documents to, to, to understand his position, which we're going to kind of give a preface for here. Um, so in this one line, you can really understand where he's coming from. Jewish law does not allow the resident to compromise Sabbath observance for the sake of medical training. Now, where he's coming from is actually a, a pretty well-trodden path. Um, Ramesha Feinstein was once asked the question. He says that if you actually had, you don't have a moral imperative uh, to learn to be capable, but you do have a moral imperative to help someone if you are capable. In other words, you have no moral imperative to become a doctor. If you are a doctor, you have a moral imperative to save life. And the way he, he writes it here is, um, to learn how to become a doctor, just like to learn how to become an investment banker to make billions of dollars to give tzedakah, there is no, you don't have a moral responsibility to, 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 to live a potential life. Um, now, using this kind of this foundation, that here the issue is that as a potential resident, you don't actually have the capability to save lives. Um, and the question in point is, are you allowed to put yourself in a state um, where you're trying to educate yourself to be more confident. Um, to that, Rehersha Schaffner is also of the opinion that even after completing all your school years, the future doctor must take special care to make sure that he has a Sabbath observant residency. If this cannot be arranged, says Rabbi Schaffner, the, the student must simply look for a different profession. Uh, in another way, he phrased it uh, at, a, at another conference, he says, there's no reason halakhically why you shouldn't be a bank teller, even after medical school. Uh, another, another very hardline position. That being said, to identify them as purely hardline positions uh, is, is not too accurate. So, so far we've had Dr. Eisenberg. Uh, we, we understand kind of his position based on the Jews of Ramesha. Ramesha Feinstein was one of the most, uh, definitely in the United States, one of the most influential um, kind of halakhic decisors of the 20th century. Um, Herschel Schachter is one of the, you know, kind of most influential halakhic decisors uh, in the 21st century, definitely in the New York area. Um, and now we're going to kind of hit the trifecta with Abram, uh, Avram ben Avram. Uh, he, is, he is an ophthalmologist, I, I believe. I think he's still with us. Uh, he had a very special relationship with a guy named Shlomo Zavon Arbach. Shlomo Zavon Arbach was one of the you know, really important halakhic decisors, specifically medical halakha in all things science and Torah um, in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, he had a deep relationship with Rav Yashiv. He had a very strong relationship with, uh, with um Chaznich and others, and he also comes from a Hasidic background, so he, for many reasons, both social, uh, kind of his positioning in the religious world, and also uh, just his pure brilliance, uh, everyone takes his opinion very seriously. Avram and Avram would take all his halachic decisions from uh, Rabbi Orbach, uh, and so the assumption here, again, he's asked the same question by Daniel Eisenberg, uh, quite the instigator when it comes to these topics, uh, and he says, Dr. Eisenberg asked him the question, are, are you allowed to not take a Shem Shabbos position? Um, so he, in one and two, uh, if you guys are looking at the PowerPoint, he says, one may not under any circumstance rank or accept a job or program that will not commit in advance to the person being off for Shabbos starting Friday afternoon and, and in the afternoon before Yom Tov. I cannot agree with the second part of the sentence, um, since you have to be a real Talmud Chacham in place to deal with the problems, right? So he's asked, what if I know how to keep Shabbos during, during residency? He says, you need to be an absolute genius. You need to be a Pesach par excellence to actually keep Shabbos in, in the hospital. Um, furthermore, you're going to be under a considerable, a considerable amount of peer pressure. Okay, so now we kind of have, 
we have a lot of opinions that are kind of lining up against uh, taking a non-Shepherdshop position. But as we said, this is much more nuanced. Uh, and this really is to give everyone listening a background potentially to uh, how to make the, the right professional decisions. So what we can see from here is clearly there's no blanket doctor hat term. Um, in light of the above though, how is it that we all probably know with one or two degrees of separation, many religious, totally Shemesh Shabbos individuals that are, are able to keep Shabbos in a hospital. Um, and I guess our thinking right now is, um, how do we get from point A where we're, we're holding right now, which seems quite more, morally defensible, uh, to kind of the other side of this, this equation. Um, so our goal right now is gonna go through some primary sources, uh, to understand how to approach this topic on a, a halakhic lattice and kind of from an intellectual basis. And then we're going to look at, um, you know, from the primary sources, uh, i.e. Uh, Gemara's, Shulchan Aruch, Rishayinim, Achreinim, uh, and then we're going to go to modern uh, halakhic decisors. So that actually is a great segue into this conversation. All right, so we're, we're going we're gonna to go back in time right now to Moshe Sefer, the, the, the Chassam Sefer. Uh, Chassam Sefer is really kind of an important person in uh, halakhic response literature, uh, living kind of uh, right during the Industrial Revolution in Europe. He lived in Prussia, which now is part of Czechoslovakia. Um, he had one of the biggest yeshivas, and his Derech of Psak becomes incredibly influential throughout the 19th, 20th centuries. Uh, and anyone really doing smicha is going to end up learning a lot of these Shalasadrovas. So in one of these famous Shalasadrovas, um, which he has like 3,000 of them, if you really want to get nitpicky on them. Um, so in, in his set of Shalasadrovas, he's asked the question by, uh, there's, a, there's a change in the local regional government. Um, they're trying to get the, the mortality rate within the infant population, the, the, birth, the birth mortality rate down. Um, and so what they do is they appoint um, midwives that have special training from the highest, you know, from the, from the halls of, of, of science and medicine at the time, um, which kind of is an interesting thing to read. Um, and the question here is what if the only, and, and so the law was that by every single birth, every single live birth that's gonna happen in Prussia at that time, uh, the, there has to be a state mandated, a state trained uh, midwife. Um, now, in some of those provinces, the only midwives that would be there would be Jewish midwives, ostensibly religious Jewish midwives. And the question would be, what if they're called to a non-Jewish birth? Now, technically, the Gemaras that we're using before that talk about the sanctity of life really are only referring to Jewish lives, partly because Jews keep Shabbos, and based on how you read the, read the Makaris, that might be a contentious issue for a different time. But just to read his sources, how are you supposed to deal in the moment with that moral quandary, right? So you're talking to a Jewish midwife who's, who's, who's coming to a birth or saving a life, so to speak, that is not halakhic mandated. So, so he says, uh, so long story short, he says, uh, based on the fact that if you don't show up and if you don't do your work, there will be so much ill will uh, within, you know, the, the, the non-Jewish population to the Jewish population, you are now not only in personal risk, right? You're going to have a program at your door, but you're also risking the lives of many Jews around you. Therefore, you're allowed to pretty much do anything, even if there's an Isidrab on it. But, but to cut the, cut the umbilical cord, which would be an Isidrab, try to ask a non-Jewish woman to do it. If there's no if there's no one there that's capable of cutting it, there's, there's a kind of right? Okay, so he's using mechanics as follows: You're afraid of instilling bad will, bad will uh, in the 18th century, but I could also argue in the 21st century um, can cause loss of life elsewhere. Um, and therefore, if you're in that position because of Ava, because of ill will, you're allowed to kind of even do malachsteraisa. Now, again, is he saying that there's a blanket hatter? No, he's saying that if you're in that situation. 
um, you don't really have a choice. Remember, these were people that were already state mandated. Uh, the law came into effect, and they're trying to figure out to do, you know, what to do in that moment. His advice, though, is to try to get, you know, a non-Jewish woman to also have the same certification. As like a disclaimer, <laughs> we're talking about specifically like being able to not keep Shabbos, right? So we're not talking about just like the like the ethics of like the value of a life, like non-Jewish or Jewish, like. Obviously, all life is right equal, and we're talking about specifically within the framework of the writing we saw earlier, which was that you would be allowed to break Shabbos for saving a life, partially because of the continued um, keeping of Shabbos, right? And so that's that's why the, is that why this question comes into play, where we're talking about um, well, maybe that person's not Jewish and won't be continued to keep Shabbos, and so how do we work that into that? Yeah, like, so that that does happen to be the moral framework that is being used. Um, okay. Now, that that is the general Jewish moral framework. Uh, you know, Yiddishkeit is, is Judaism is it's assumed that life is important beyond all else. But in reality, Judaism does assume that there are values that trump life itself. Um, you know, there, you know, there's three mitzvahs that a person is not allowed to to, to go over. A person needs to sacrifice their life for. Um, the idea of Mesir Snefesh, the idea of self-sacrifice, is definitely one that you know we've kind of all had within our history. Um, yeah, so in conclusion would be like, this is how our, our workaround of how to save other lives, even without that, you know, like legally, how would you go about saving other lives without that point of saying they're going to keep other Shabbos? Yeah, important, important disclaimer, though.